The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Jeannie Bayliss, D+. I know you can do better, Jeannie. Yes, Miss Hopkins. Garth Bergeron, B-. I think you had a B plus on the last geography test, didn't you? Yes, Miss Hopkins. Well, this is quite an improvement. Thank you. Morris Wilkerson, C-. Good work, Morris. Geraldine Hoberman, C. Congratulations, Geraldine. <laughs> Harrison Bergeron, A+. Plus. have you been held back now, Harrison? Three? Four. Well, you never get to grade 15 with these marks. <laughs> I know, it's pretty embarrassing having your younger brother in the same class. Mm. When was your band last adjusted? A month ago. They increased the intensity? And the frequency. I mean, it just doesn't help. Don't get discouraged, Harrison. You know, many pupils would be tempted to cheat on their tests, give wrong answers. You've got a lot of integrity. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could get rid of some of it. Good day, everyone. It's Thursday, October 22nd, 2015. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, coming to you online and on iTunes. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be It's our first show since the end of one of Canada's longest elections. And the winner is the Liberals and bigger government. Given the election results, I imagine there are those still at this time of the week, rightly or wrongly, who think that we're witnessing the end of civilization, though which civilization may yet be another matter of debate. So if you're still suffering from electoral shock, Maybe you just weren't plugged in right. (laughs) Just one of the subjects Robert and I will be talking about very briefly today, though. We'll be ending up the show with putting Uber unter uh, by using a very handy cat, and we'll be talking about that later. And I understand, Robert, you'll be talking about cultural reappropriation, reintroducing the freedom culture or something along that line? Cultural misappropriation or misrepresentation, I think, is better. And, And the freedom culture, yes. Very well. And, uh, well, before we get into our conversation and our comments initially on the election, I just want to remind everyone that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to iTunes on i uh, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, rather, visit us at triple www.justrightmedia.org, where you can also donate to help keep the show not only online, but expanding its markets elsewhere. Now, uh, I didn't stay up to watch election results on Monday night, but when I awoke on Tuesday morning, I have to admit, Robert, I felt a sense of relief to learn that the result of the election was a liberal majority, not my first choice, but my second choice. My greatest fear was a liberal or conservative minority, because that would mean the election wasn't really over, and we know some of the problems with minority governments. Any observations on your part? Well, yes, I'd I'd agree with you there, Bob. Uh, Just... Just briefly, because we can get into this at length at some other show once we've had time to digest its full impact. But, yeah, I'm with you. I think a liberal majority is far better than a uh, liberal minority, in which case the NDP would hold the the real keys to power, and Thomas Mulcair would be uh, the man to appease. And uh, I'm glad that Trudeau does not have to look to Mulcair. They have been relegated. They have been crushed. Uh, the Orange Crush, as they called it, and I think that's great. That was a good thing for the country. Uh, disappointed, yes, I'm disappointed that my ca- ca- government didn't get back in. I did support the Conservatives, as I mentioned on a couple of shows ago, mm-hmm. um, for various reasons, which uh, listeners can go back and listen to those. But you know something? Let's work with what we've got here now. Let's look at the Trudeau government. There's going to be some great fodder for some episodes coming up, Bob, with talk of proportional representation that Trudeau supports. Supported, I understand. Well, you, you and know, of course, the pot issue. You, you know, it's a funny issue there with the uh, proportional representation. One of the first comments I heard on the air on other shows was someone commenting that had this election been run through proportional representation, Trudeau wouldn't have gotten his majority. No, he would have gotten a minority. I saw that on CBC as well. Yes. See, now he's able to uh, now he's able to govern as as a leader should be able to govern, whether we like him or not, is a separate issue. 
Mm -hmm. But you can imagine how even his power would have been uh, dramatically reduced, and we wouldn't really be knowing the man. We'd be seeing some compromise of the person in government. But you know, that's going to be something we really got to watch because I know that both you and I uh, oppose proportional representation and uh, would like the first, well, we like the way it is right now, first past the post, although there are alternatives that we considered as well. Yeah, I don't, I don't what mind do you think the, uh, you know, when you rank the ballots, that's a different issue too, you know. That's, yes, single transferable, mm-hmm. transferable vote. Um, but the, the one issue that a lot of my friends and myself included are going to be eyeing is how is he going to decriminalize possession or even sale of cannabis? That's, that's going to be the big issue on a lot of people's minds. Very much so. And, and uh, of course, we had some commentary to that effect already on a couple of previous broadcasts. be interesting to see if those come to pass. I think that's all we really want to talk about on this topic today, Robert. But, um, you know, who has a corner on vision? This is not the first generation that has felt dissatisfied. Uh, and that's what we're, go- we're going to hear from this amazing clip you found from the Dragnet series, which obviously aired during the Vietnam era and, of course, refers to America, not to Canada. But very interesting. I re- one of the comments I know that comes up in it is, uh, you know, don't break things up in the name of progress, which, of course, we call today progressivism. <laughs> yes. You just don't understand. Maybe we do, son. Don't think you have a corner on all of virtue vision in the country or that everybody else is fat and selfish and you're the first generation to come along that's felt dissatisfied. They all have, you know, about different things and most of them didn't have the same opportunity and freedoms that you do. Let's talk poverty. Most places in the world, that's not a problem. It's a way of life. And rights, they're liable to give you a blank stare because they may not know what you're talking about. The fact is more people are living better right here than anywhere else ever before in history. So don't expect us to roll over and play dead when you say you're dissatisfied. It's not perfect, but it's a great deal better than when we grew up. A hundred men standing in the street hoping for one job, selling apples on the street corner. That's one of the things we were dissatisfied about, and you don't see that much anymore. You're taller, stronger, healthier, better educated, and you live longer than the last generation. And we don't think that's altogether bad. You've probably never seen a quarantine sign in your neighbor's door. Diphtheria, scarlet fever, whooping cough. Probably none of your classmates are crippled with polio. You don't see many mastoid scars anymore. We've done quite a bit of fighting all around the world. Whether you think it was moral or not, a lot of people are free today to make their own mistakes because of it. And that may just include you. I don't know. Maybe part of it's the fact that you're in a hurry. You've grown up on instant orange juice. Flip a dial, instant entertainment. Dial seven digits, instant communication. Turn a key, push a pedal, instant transportation. Flash a card, instant money. Shove in a problem, push a few buttons, instant answers. But some problems you can't get quick answers to no matter how much you want them. We took a little boy into Central Receiving Hospital yesterday. He was four years old. He weighs eight and a half pounds. His parents just haven't bothered to feed him. Now, give me a fast answer to that one. One that'll stop that from ever happening again. And if you can't settle that one, what about the 55,000 Americans who will die on the highways this year? That's nearly six or seven times the number that'll get killed in Vietnam. Why aren't you up in arms about that? Or is dying in a car somehow moral? Tell me how to wipe out prejudice. I'll settle for just the prejudices you have inside yourselves. Show me how to get rid of the unlimited capacity for human beings to make themselves believe that they're somehow right and justified in stealing from somebody or hurting somebody. And you'll just about put this place here out of business. I don't think that we're telling you to lose your ideals or your sense of outrage. They're the only way things ever get done. And there's a lot that still needs doing. And we hope you'll tackle it. You don't have to do anything dramatic like trying to come up with a better country. You can find enough to keep you busy right here. While you're at it, don't break things up in the name of progress or crack a placard stick over somebody's head to help him see the light. Be careful of his rights, because your property and your person and your rights aren't any better than his. And next time, you may be the one to get it. We remember a man who killed six million people and called it social improvement. So hang in. Don't try to build a new country. Make the old one work. It has for over 400 years. And by the world's standards, that's hardly more than yesterday. That clip was from the TV series Dragnet, and I play it today because I'm going to talk about culture. What it is, what it isn't, and what lies behind our culture. Now, Joe Friday and Bill Gannon 
from Dragnet may have been talking about the political climate of the United States in the 60s, but much of what they had to say can be said today and here in Canada, and much of what they had to say speaks to the conclusion of what I'm about to say. It sure does. It was just one awesome speech, Robert. It, I, it when was. I first heard that Dragnet clip, I, I, I was going, wow, you don't hear that kind of stuff today anymore. No, but you can actually on YouTube, because that's where uh, it was found. <laughs> of course. <laughs> the perpetual great debate in this country is defining our culture. In my estimation, it seems that the answer to that question depends on who you ask. Now, if you ask a leftist on the streets of Toronto, you'll undoubtedly find that having a socialist medical system is integral to our culture. If you ask an evangelical Christian in Saskatchewan, you might find that Canada is a nation of givers who sacrifice for each other. If you ask an individualist in rural Alberta, you'll hear that Canada is a nation where we're free to live our own life if we choose. Now, they can't all be correct, can they? Isn't culture something we can pin down and define common to everybody? In That's this a challenge, country, isn't it? It is, actually, yeah. In this country, as in the United States, there are, uh, which are nations both of immigrants from all over the world, defining our culture by such parameters as clothing, language, laws, entertainment, habits, or food, seems about as difficult as trying to describe a Jackson Pollock painting. It's indefinable. Perhaps if we start with a definition of the word culture. Now, the online Merriam-Webster define, defines culture this way. Quote, the customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious, or social group, unquote. Now, this is somewhat helpful if we were all of the same race and religion and were a cohesive social group, but we aren't. We're a mix of races, ethnicities, religious beliefs, and are a population scattered across the second largest tract of land on the globe, so we're hardly a cohesive social group. Merriam-Webster continues with a more appropriate definition to the discussion, I think. Quote, the characteristic features of everyday existence as diversions or a way of life shared by people in a place or time, for example, popular culture or southern culture, unquote. Now, this is the definition we want, but how in the world do we quantify and average the characteristic features of the everyday existence of every Canadian, from the muck-tuck-munching Eskimos of Iqaluit to the wine-sipping hipsters of Windsor to the teetotaling grandmas of Victoria? You, you, mean, is, you, mean, you mean there's actually a way to do that? <laughs> no, no. The answer, of course, is that you can't do that. You can only make crude summations based on what seem to be popular trends of major groups of people. For example, we can clearly say that most Canadians speak English, although there are millions of us who do not. We can clearly say that most Canadians are of European descent, although there are millions of us who are not. By far, the dominant religion in Canada is Catholic, at 40%. So... But that leaves 60% of us who aren't. They, they just won't like, fit into just that like democracy, box. we're outnumbered. We're, just, we're outnumbered, <laughs> just like democracy. Everybody is outnumbered, I guess. But these kinds of numbers are simply demographics, and they're not much in the way of a cultural definition. What about the diversions or way of life given in the dictionary definition I just quoted? Hockey is our national sporting pastime, although I personally don't play or follow the sport, and there are millions like me, so that can't be it. Is the CBC our main television diversion? Far from it. The Financial Post in an article from last December revealed the CBC has only a 5% share of television viewers. 5%. This low number can hardly be said to have any significance on the average diversions of Canadians. And I'll have more to say about the CBC later in the show. Now, as Canadians, we are extremely diverse in our television viewing habits. This may not have been the case back in the early days of television, when a large percentage of Canadians enjoyed the beachcombers, for example, on CBC, and were glued to Hockey Night in Canada. But it can't be said today, with hundreds of television channels competing to be our national diversion. And as with television, our diversions in other areas commonly ascribed to our culture, such as the theatre, movies, games, sports, music, are limitless in their scope. Nope. Pinning down Canadian culture by cataloging our diversions, I think, is pointless. These diversions are not only too numerous to be of any value to us culturally, they're also transitory. The diversions of today's Canadian are completely different 
from the diversions of Canada from only 10 years ago, let alone the diversions of Canada at the time of this country's founding. These are nothing more than fads and fashions which come and go with each passing generation. The Canadian diversions of today are far different from the diversions of when I was growing up. I don't know about you, Bob. Television shows, books, plays all fall out of popularity. These things well, I... can't be used to define a culture, or if they can, it can only be a small slice of culture at a particular time for a small group of people. You were going to I say have, something? I have, to, I have to confess, Robert, that even the beachcombers and, and Hockey Night in Canada were two things I never really got around to watching on CBC. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you are. But a, I did watch Razzle Dazzle. Was that on CBC? Razzle Dazzle? Yeah. Oh, I don't know what that one was. Yeah, I don't recall <laughs> watching that one. Hey, maybe my my analogy <laughs> falls down. <laughs> that that was my cultural upbringing, right there. Uh-huh. Al Hamill. Yeah. Now, if if diversions like Razzle Dazzle and Beachcombers can't be used to define our culture, that only leaves what Merriam-Webster identified as quote a way of life to define our culture. But what is the way of life of Canadians? Is it our work? Nope. Besides a paycheck, the investment bankers of Bay Street have nothing work-related in common with the fishermen in Labrador or the grape growers of Niagara. Is it how we relax at home with a beer on the veranda? Or how we relax at home with a glass of wine on our 20th uh, floor apartment? No, these things say nothing of our way of life. They're not common. None of these things define who we are as Canadians or what our culture is, except perhaps in one respect. The sheer number of diversions and options we have to work and enjoy our way of life reveal one underlying trait which we all enjoy. We have the freedom to choose our way of life. We are free. We have to get behind the scenes of all these things to see the fundamental truths and principles about what makes us Canadians. These fundamental truths and principles are what define us culturally. They are ingrained in our sense of being. They drive our way of life, as diverse as as those ways are. Now, I realize that most of my time on Just Right, I've been uh, talking about how unfree we really are. But, you know, compared to many other nations of the world, including the United States, I would say, we are perhaps the freest country on the planet. Absolutely. The fact. When we talk about being unfree, we're talking about a direction in which we see our governments heading in. And it's definitely in the unfree direction. And what you need to do is turn it around and things will fix, not fix themselves, as as Justin Trudeau would say, (laughs) but, but be fixed through the process, which is the correct process. I agree, yeah. Now, we talk about how unfree we are becoming, and certainly there's a great deal to that. But... I think if you look at other places in the world, we've got a pretty good here, you know, in, no in the respect that I'm talking about. No question. You know, the very fact that I can complain about how unfree we are says something about how free we are. <laughs> For the most part, we have freedom of speech. Ironic, I know, on the heels of this show's suspension from CHRW a few weeks ago. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. I wasn't <laughs> say anything. Let's put that aside. Here, I'm still speaking my mind, though, freely, you know. Freedom is what defines Canadian culture. Freedom of speech, freedom of thought, the liberty to do as we please, so long as we don't violate the same freedoms our neighbors enjoy. We can own property, we can own rifles and guns, we can start a radio station, we can blog about our cats, we can drink wine or beer, we can party till dawn or work till we drop. We have the freedom to choose our diversions and our way of life. Granted, all of these freedoms are, to one extent or another, restricted and infringed upon from time to time by all levels of the various governments. But in comparison to the diversions and ways of life of, say, for example, the citizens of Russia, or Brazil, or Venezuela, or North Korea, or Saudi Arabia, or Pakistan, Canadians are free. That's our culture. Not only are we free, we expect to be free. We demand to be free. We choose to be free, and we fight to remain free. It is our freedom which defines us. It's our freedom which sets us apart as a nation and as a culture. Now this defining aspect of our culture, our freedom culture, if you will, is shared, I have to admit, by other countries. And if we examine the histories of these other countries, these other free countries, we see a common denominator. Most or all of them have historical ties 
to Western Europe and, most particularly, to England. There are few countries in the world which can be said to be free which have not had some close relationship historically with England. Consider the countries of the Anglosphere where Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, and others, these being the most prominent though, um, all of them are free, and all of them have inherited the freedom culture, which had most of its roots in England. You know, Robert, you, know, you know, Robert, when you're talking about the freedom culture, I think of Ayn Rand saying, when, it, when you know it's part of the culture is when it becomes what Rand, I think, used to call the sense of life. Yes. Yeah. When it's deeply, deeply ingrained in the people, and I don't think in trying to change a culture that can happen in less than, say, two or three generations, wouldn't you think? No, I agree. Um, like I said before, the diversions change, mm. but the sense of life of a, of a nation, I think, does take a lot, uh, many generations, and uh, a lot of evil people <laughs> to change, <laughs> you know? You know, then we look at India, for example, or, you know, little, little India out there, which had close ties to England for centuries. Compare it to its neighbors. India's reaping the benefits of those ancient ties, while her neighboring countries continue under various forms of tyranny. Oddly enough, Pakistan had close ties to India too, but they've rejected all of that. Now look at them. I find it interesting that our good friend Salim Mansour should hail from India. Yes. And who even, as a Muslim, shares the cultural values of the West. Oh yes, very much so. I yeah. think that's extraordinarily telling. And yep. tells you where a lot of the the source of those values lie. And you're right, it, it all stems t to the history of England and what happened there. Um, yeah. That's what makes that country particularly a fascinating one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to study in you world know. history. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's English system of government and mm -hmm. centuries of common law, which has allowed these countries to flourish under freedom and capitalism. The United States chose a, a system other than a parliamentary system, but it still retained much of English common law and the ideals of the Enlightenment. You know, these laws and system for good governance did not spring up overnight, though. We can, however, trace the roots of freedom to a single date in English history. And I think you know which date I'm going to talk about, aren't you? The 15th of June, 1215 AD, 800 years ago this year. The Magna the, Carta. The signing of the Magna Carta. It was on this date that the many powers of the monarchy were proscribed and limited by the barons of England under threat of civil war. Although our present laws bear little resemblance to the Great Charter of 1215, it was the precedent set by that charter which established and acknowledged that the people of England had rights which were to be protected by the state. Our freedom culture grew slowly over generations, fed by the ideas of great thinkers from England and Western Europe during the Renaissance and the Age of Enlightenment. The laws of Canada have incorporated many of these ideas of these philosophers and legislatures, legislators, and we have reached the point we occupy today. It has been a bit of a circuitous route to freedom, I'd have to say. It hasn't been a straight road, and we have made many mistakes, falling to the wayside from time to time. And by no means is our freedom secure, but we are free. That's our culture. Now, what I'm going to play for you uh, right now is a clip from a man whose skill at oration far exceeds mine and who seems to have grasped precisely what I'm talking about. In fact, I've even borrowed some of his words to put this show together. This is Bishop Fulton J. Sheen in a television talk he gave in 1956. Now, in many ways, he reminds me of the Jesuit priests and Christian brothers who taught me. They had a love of knowledge and a flair for the dramatic. Let's give a listen. It's always a good thing to remember that if you marry, the mood or the spirit of an age, you will be a widow in the next one. These fashions simply do not last. And it is not to be said that if one does not follow each of these fashions that one is behind the times. No, one is behind the scenes. 
sees the theories that were popular years ago will be forgotten in 10 or 15 years, but we've got to have some principles that do not change to live by. Who today knows Herbert Spencer? How many books of Herbert Spencer are taken out of the public libraries of the United States? Yet everybody read Spencer 50 years ago. Nobody knows him today. That's going to be true of the same ones who create the mood of this hour. Therefore, to think well, one has to have principles that are independent of space and time by which one can live. We know that these principles exist and we know there's such a thing as truth simply because there's a logos, there's an intelligence behind the universe. One of the great th thrills of thinking is to know all the sides but also to know what is right and what is true. Why, it's a romance very much as Chesterton says, like driving a, a chariot, six wild horses, driving them down a mountain lane road. And on either side of this mountain road, there's a ravine here, precipice here, chasm here, and a pit here. And the thrill of following truth is to drive those horses straight down that line. Oh, it's the easiest thing in all the world to be a rightist, for example, in politics. All you got to do is tumble over. The easiest thing in the world to be a leftist. Just fall over. Let go. It was the easiest thing in the world to be an Aryan in the 4th or 5th century. Easiest thing in the world to tumble into some mood today. Very easy to be a communist. Just as simple as falling off a log. Very easy to be a Nazi. All you got to do is fall into the other side. And so the great romance of truth, therefore, consists in ewing to this straight line, knowing the pitfalls, and driving the horses of truth directly, and seeing all of these errors and moods, prostrate and fallen and forgotten, but driving ahead, really, but erect, that's the romance of thinking, that's the joy of truth. So what do you think of Bishop Fulton Sheen, Bob? Isn't he great? Um, incredible words. And when you consider when they were recorded in 1955... I thought it was fifty-six, um, but I could be mistaken. Oh, 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 I thought it was fifty-five, but close, oh, okay. close enough. Let's 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 sure. let's be very picky on that, shall we? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it, you know, if you marry the mood or spirit of an age, you'll be a widow in the next one. That's just haunting. Those are haunting words. A lot of it, people make that mistake of being stuck in the past, don't they? Yes, uh, in a way, I guess culturally. You can see these in a more humorous and subtle way, maybe, or maybe serious. You, you, see, you still see hippies and stuff like that, and little pockets of, of pop culture and past cultures that have come and gone that, that do, do carry on in a smaller sense, I think. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, the fact that he says that we need principles that do not change to live by, and, you know, independent of space and time, uh, and the whole idea of a logos to the universe, which to me is the law of causality, right? Well, and I think he meant it in the, in the strict Catholic sense oh, sure, of being the prime mover. Uh, the Logos also is applied to Jesus Christ at times in, in mm -hmm. Catholicism, him being, um, was it the Logos Jesus, meaning the... Uh, that's right. Uh, yeah, the, in, in more in more senses than one, what you just said, the prime mover. <laughs> well, that's that's what I mean, you know. Law it's causality. the law of causality, and that's it's the nature of the universe. And then to turn, to, to actually get into the politics of it, where he started talking about how, you know, people, it's so easy to become a leftist or a rightist or a Nazi or a communist, you know, yeah. just, just fall over. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's great stuff. 
it's laziness that that creates these philosophies yeah, yeah. because it requires effort it requires effort to maintain a steadfast path to truth you know the realization that our freedom is what defines us as canadians begs the question why is our culture being defined by people who are insignificant an insignificant part of our culture you know take for um example the state broadcaster cbc at one point in our history, the CBC may have been an influential media outlet, as we discussed before, but today, many of the television programs produced by the CBC can't match the viewership of many YouTube videos created by individuals, private citizens. And yet people still labor under the misconception that the CBC is a vital part of our culture and that what the pundits on CBC say is relevant to Canadian culture and it's actually relevant, you know, it's irrelevant no, it really is. Yeah. You know, they don't drive the culture at all. Freedom drives the culture. They're they're a break on the culture, if you ask me. On the you real know, for, culture, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, a forest from, culture coming from the top. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's not <laughs> organic, <laughs> if you want to use that word. This is from the Financial Post of December 11th, 2014. Quote, someone recently observed that the CBC is not about Canadian programming, but programming Canadians to its enlightened view of how the world should work, unquote. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> and so true. Oh, it the is program so Canadians. Yeah, that's great. You know, likewise, our political leaders, a small group of Canadians. You, you know, you know, Robert, that speaks mm. to our opening clip from Harrison Bergeron as well, how they're programming people to not, not have any differences between them, you know? It's force, yeah. They yeah. have to use force to do that. Yeah, and with the CBC, of course, it's forced... Uh, it's money taken from us by force, a billion dollars a year, you know, by our politicians. You know, these politicians, these self same politicians are defining Canadian cultures in ways which are opposed to our history and our underlying freedom. They're the framers of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms in direct contravention to the very notion of rights and freedoms created supreme law on this land, which may, in some instances, may protect some of our freedoms, but in many other instances, destroyed many of our freedoms. There are a number of offending sections in Canada's flawed Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Now, one such section I picked out at almost at random, because a lot of them are, are all flawed, is Section 27, which reads, and I chose this one because it has uh, the word culture in it. It reads, quote, This charter shall be interpreted in a manner consistent with the preservation and enhancement of the multicultural heritage of Canadians, unquote. Canada has a single culture of individual freedom. And while individual citizens may have come from cultures foreign to Canada's, and, and while individuals from various regions of Canada may have diverse cultural practices, that's not to say that Canada, taken as a whole, doesn't have a single culture, a culture shared by all, regardless of how foreign their past or current cultural practices may be. Are we to interpret section 27 of the Charter, to mean that the behavior of people who come from cultures which are defined by tyranny, collectivism, and socialism are to be given protection, are to be preserved, are to be enhanced, according to the, the words of the Charter? It would seem so. Let me well, reiterate. Hmm? Multiculturalism, of course, politically practices something very different from what we in normal society mean when we really mean multi-ethnic or multicolored or multilingual, um, which are yes. entirely different things than a culture. A culture is a body of belief. And if the other belief is exactly the opposite of your culture's belief, that doesn't make them compatible. That's exactly what I'm getting at, Bob. That's, right? that's, that's it. You got the point. Oh, I, mean, I guess I've been listening. <laughs> yeah, we're, no, we're not talking about ethnicity. They don't say here are a multi-ethnic heritage of Canadians. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about culture. And right. what did I just define culture as being? I mean, freedom in yes. Canada. That's our culture. So multicultural means a mix of freedom and slavery, a mix of tyranny and freedom. You know, let me make this point a little more clear to reiterate people's styles of dress, the food they eat, the language they speak, the forms of entertainment they consume are not parts of culture which need protection, enhancement, or preservation. These things live and die on their own, as we've demonstrated. So one can only interpret the word of multicultural, uh, multicultural in section 27 
as meaning a mix of capitalism and freedom, our culture, with socialism and tyranny, their culture. One can only interpret our charter as being a legal instrument which destroys our culture. It's a form not of necessarily cultural suicide, but of cultural murder. It's intended. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms does not define Canadian culture. It is not yet a part of our Canadian culture. It's brand new, really. I mean, I think you and I can both remember when that was signed quite vividly. Oh, very clearly. Yeah, it's a document created by 11 like-minded men whose political ideals clashed with our culture of freedom. Trudeau and the Ten Premiers. As laws are being interpreted using the Charter, it could indeed become a part of our culture, but our culture will no longer be one of freedom. Our culture will come to resemble the culture of many other nations on earth which aren't free. There are other influential people out to destroy our culture besides the people at the CBC and our politicians. And they're all in a minority, I hope, but they occupy influential roles. So besides the members of parliament, you got book, publi- book publishers, television and radio station owners, newspaper reporters, um, presidents of universities, presidents of uh, teachers' colleges, etc. These people, who could probably all fit into a small stadium, are redefining what Canadian culture is, intentionally redefining it. They may be insignificant in numbers compared to our 35 million, but they are significant in influence. They are selling their misrepresented version of Canada openly, and many of us are buying it. Well, I'm here to tell you that our culture should not be defined by these people. It is not defined by by these people. It's defined by the way of life we all live. A free life in a free country, and as Bishop Sheen said, it's easy to fall off that road. But as long as we realize this and remain on the road to truth, the longer we will remain free. Excellent, Robert. Thanks, Bob. And You know, I'm just thinking about what you said. I don't know how, the, how our time's doing here, but... You know, on the lighter side, speaking of cultural icons, <laughs> this one's a Western cultural icon. I don't know, don't know if you heard, but apparently, and this is out of the buzz in the free press just this past uh, October 15th, um, Playboy magazine is going to stop having nudes. Can you believe that? Um, oh. It's a cold <laughs> day today. <laughs> is how it's frozen <laughs> over? I don't know. But it's very interesting the change in culture, you know, there's a magazine that once was a leader in culture, and now it sounds like it's following the culture. I don't know what the decision behind that is, but uh, apparently executives at the magazine, which was launched in 53, announced this week that naked photographs of models will no longer appear starting in March 2016 onward. And uh, Jenny McCarthy has, has, has posed for the final issue, and she says it breaks her heart that, that it's the end of an era, she said during her Sirius XM radio show. And she says she'll be wearing her panties at a half-mast. <laughs> 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 and maybe more on the road, but she says that she'd do it one more time. She says uh, that Hugh Hefner did not create a lewd publication, adding he worked really hard to find the girl next door. You know, we did a show on uh, on the Playboy philosophy back on uh, 2009, September 7th, show 120. I recall. One of the th- yeah, one of the things that w- we discovered about the, the, the Hefner, the, the Hugh Hefner's Playboy philosophy was that it was an accompaniment en- of freedom, capitalism, reason, and consent, very Western values. Yes. So, you know, I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but notably absent from the, the phrase executives at the magazine was Hugh Hefner's name. I don't know if he's supportive of this change. But here's my take. If you're going to take the nudes out of Playboy, I don't think it should be called Playboy magazine anymore. It's a new concept now. Don't you agree? Hmm. I, I don't know. I, I, mean, I don't know bec- what to make of that. There was al- and it's a tough one. There's always something to be said about that, quote, sexual freedom that Playboy represented. And I don't know if it's because of the markets changing. They certainly weren't a porn magazine. They're not competing with the porn industry. So what's behind this change, I'm kind of curious about in the future. But it certainly does indicate another change in a culture. Now, coming up next, putting Uber Unter with a handy cap, a trade cap that is, 
Here's David Menzies from a brief portion of his Rebel Media post of September 27th, who's one of the few media commentators who've actually taken a very blunt and realistic view of the Uber challenge. And on the other side of the bumper, we'll be hearing from Rebel Media's Ezra Levant on the same issue. You'll get a kick out of this. The cab industry has brought the Uber disruption upon themselves. Cab companies and the bureaucracies that regulate the cab companies all over the globe tend to follow a business model that is seemingly lifted from Soviet Union supply management economic theory, namely keep the supply of cabs artificially low so that a minimum income for the cabbie is guaranteed and his plate value remains high. This is why it's virtually impossible getting a cab during high demand periods such as New Year's Eve, Halloween and Super Bowl Sunday. Meanwhile, the cab companies are aided and abetted by city bureaucrats who are doing their utmost to stymie Uber, typically by issuing tickets to Uber drivers for operating without a limousine license or launching futile legal action against the company. The reason for this resistance, if the taxi cab industry is diminished or wiped out completely, those bureaucrats, well, they're out of a job too, right? Got to keep that pyramid of extortion intact, folks. And it's mostly the bureaucracy driving the fight against Uber, as opposed to the political process. I mean, in Toronto, Mayor John Tory not only supports Uber, he actually uses the service. Of course, there are anomalies. Case in point, city councillor and ex-federal Liberal Party hack, Jim Carriganis, he has reimagined himself as an Uber slayer. And how odd, usually politicians cater to the whims of the public, and there's massive public support for Uber. I wonder why Carriganis wants the ride-sharing service shut down. Hmm, surely it's not because almost 10% of Jim's campaign contributions came from the taxi industry. There's that pyramid again, folks. Meanwhile, those cab owners bemoaning the fact that their nest egg on wheels is collapsing, well, I'm sorry. A few years ago, a municipal taxi plate in Toronto could fetch around 360000 These days on Kijiji, you can find a cab medallion for as little as 120000 That's 120000 too much, if you ask me, because those medallions are soon going to be completely worthless. And I don't want to sound callous, folks, but sorry, cabbies, that's business. Fortunes are won and lost on the stock market every day, and the losers don't go crying to government agencies for protection. Which brings us to another issue. Why does government feel it has a role in picking and choosing winners and losers when it comes to certain sectors of the economy? Let's reset the clock to say 15 years ago and the emergence of digital photography. Could you imagine a city hall bureaucrat saying, well, this digital photography, it's all very interesting and nice, but we have hundreds of people employed in this city who process rolls of film, so digital cameras shall be illegal to use in this ju jurisdiction. Preposterous. And how about this nugget, folks? Dozens of Toronto cab drivers have actually applied for Uber designation only to be turned down. Why? Well, they failed the criminal background check. So the question arises, why are there people driving cabs in the so-called regulated industry who can't even meet Uber's minimum benchmark for criminality? You know what they proposed in London, England? They proposed a new rule for Uber and other ride-sharing companies. Uber cars are so cheap compared to the old taxi cabs and they're so fast that the City of London is proposing to add a mandatory five-minute wait before you can use your Uber. As in old-style taxis shouldn't have to get better, Uber should have to get worse. It reminds me of the terrifying short story written by Kurt Vonnegut 55 years ago called Harrison Bergeron. I just want to read you the first paragraph of that book. Ready? The year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law, they were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anybody else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th amendments to the Constitution and to the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States Handicapper General. It's a great story, it's a sad story, 
Handsome people had to wear ugly masks. Smart people had to wear devices that rang loud bells in their head to break up their smart thoughts. Strong people had to carry around heavy stones. Everyone was made equal by dragging everybody down. That's government for you. Uber is too good? We can't have that. Make them slow and unfriendly, just like the old ta taxi cabs. Yeah, what a disgrace. For the Rebel.media, I'm Ezra Levant. What a disgrace. Ezra has properly pronounced moral judgment on this issue, I think, Robert. Both David Menzies, with his pyramid of extortion, that was just one small part of it, and Ezra Levant were right on the mark with their Uber observations. Both of those observations were from the rebel media, by the way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, wow, talk about silly, you know, putting a five-minute limit <laughs> or, <laughs> or, or penalty up before you can go out and do your Uber call. That's yeah. government for you, notes Ezra, upon observing that everybody was made equal by dragging everyone down. And he, he referred to the Harrison Bergeron novel, and of course we opened our show with a clip from the movie, and, you know, where we heard our in our show opener Harrison saying he, he suffers from an integrity problem. He has <laughs> to get rid of some of his integrity before he can be equal with other people. Ooh, that's chilling. It is. Well, Ezra's comment is correct. It's not in the nature, it's like it's not in the nature of government that making people equal requires dragging everybody down, but in the nature of equality itself, when taken out of its intended consequence of equality before and under the law. What's really a disgrace, to put it in Ezra's word, is that government should even consider making the attempt, let alone acting upon it. You know, you, you can't make an unintelligent person intelligent. Not even by force. Ayn Rand used to point that out insistently. But you can make an intelligent person behave unintelligently using force or literally make him unintelligent by handicapping him with drugs or surgery because then you're destroying. You're not creating. Similarly with physical attributes, attributes of talent, and just about any other thing you can think of, the same principle applies. And that's why egalitarian socialist societies are always dying societies to to the extent that they actually practice what they preach. Now, I just love the, the Uber issue, Robert. <laughs> As we mentioned before, it's just such a wonderful test tube illustration of so many principles in play that we always try to demonstrate on this show every week. And pushing the Uber debate into the public eye has been a bit of an embarrassment for Uber's opponents, given the outrageous extremes some have gone to to protect a very corrupt, crony relationship between various governments and the various taxi industries within their jurisdictions all around the world. It's the same thing. We already took a look at the situation in France a few weeks back, and of course, what we just heard on the subject by Ezra on the Uber story from England continues to you know, tell the same universal story we've been chronicling over past broadcasts of Just Right. And so they're all talking about creating a level playing field, you know, as, as Ezra said in his example. Uh, the level playing field is a free one. It's just like your, your example yes. on freedom. And a free market, free of coercion, as in force or fraud, free of legal and regulatory restrictions that only serve certain players in the market while excluding others. And cronyism and price fixing, these are not part of a free market. These principles seem so basic and so fundamental to me that I truly am aghast that there are so many who actually support these restrictions and cronyisms as being a good thing. It just, it just freaks me out. Uh, given the political divide on the issue, there really aren't any clear voices for a truly free market. And when economists and business people get in on the debate, there's just no strong voice on the side of the real public interest and consumer interest, unlike what we just heard from the guys over at the Rebel Media. But take, for example, Mike Moffat. He's, he, his analysis in the current Business London, October 15th. He's a business investor. You know, he's, he sells securities and gives people advice. And he writes on the Uber issue in, in the October issue of Business London, quote, London has become the latest battleground in the war between Uber and the taxi industry. City Hall will, will uh, need the wisdom of Solomon in order to find a way to balance the interests of consumers and the public interest while not stifling in, in, innovation. I do not envy their task, he says. Now, I look at that and I say, how is the public interest different from the interests of consumers? I don't see them as different. 
what is the public interest in this given issue? It seems to me very clear City Hall's interest in the existing cab industry monopoly, a monopoly which you know originates at City Hall, that's what's being called the public interest yes. in, in this whole comparison issue. That, there's no public interest there, anything but. Now, I found this very interesting, and this is Mike Moffat writing. He says, full disclosure, whenever I visit Ottawa, I always take Uber. I've had too many bad experiences in Ottawa cabs with either drivers getting lost, spending the entire time having animated conversations on their cell phones, being overcharged, or being told that their credit card machines have gone down, only to have them mysteriously come back to life when I state that I'm not carrying cash. I have experienced none of these irritants when using Uber, so I'm a fan of the service. Interesting thing to say. Mm-hmm. And then he says, he refers to the existing regulatory regime, which imposes additional costs on the taxi industry, costs that are not being paid by the Uber drivers. And naturally, the taxi industry is legitimately concerned about what Uber will mean for the value of their plates and medallions, end quote. Well, you know, I agree with, with what, um, not Ezra, but who was it? It was uh, David Menzies said on on the whole Uber issue and the taxi plates. I mean, their value is going to drop to the floor, and they're going to be worth nothing soon. And it may be a legitimate concern for the holders of the plate monopoly, but their interest is not in the interest of consumers, the public, nor, I must add emphatically, the current taxi drivers themselves, who also should be relieved from having to pay extortion to holders of these plates. I mean, they could buy new cars, Robert, for some of the prices I've seen them paying just for permission to drive in the city. Have you seen some of those? Yeah, yeah. Just insane. It's exorbitant. It's extortion. <laughs> it, it, it's extortion. It can't be anything else. But too many of the current legal drives, uh, you know, th- drivers, sorry, think they're benefiting from this arrangement by paying fees to the city to keep the competitors off the street. Now, Uber has threatened this arrangement, of course. Now that the cab drivers aren't getting their money's worth from the city, they think, you know, that they think they've paid for a service that's now due, and, and they got a good reason to get upset because it's not being delivered. And personally, I've always considered this arrangement to be utterly criminal, while recognizing that it is, in fact, a requirement of law that makes it not criminal. And I felt this for a lot of years, and my personal record on this goes back a few decades, as you know, here in London, uh, when this issue became front-page news way back in the 80s and 90s. And by the way, full full disclosure on my part, I don't use public transit or cabs of any kind, (laughs) though there have been, of course, been rare instances where I've done so. But in each of those instances, I was totally reminded why the private automobile is here to stay, I tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Which brings the Uber debate into the next possible nightmare scenario. And uh, again, uh, this is Mike Moffat writing, It will not be easy for City Hall to square this circle. Back in February, the Mowat Center released a study, Policymaking for for the Sharing Economy. And he says, in my view, the most important piece of advice they give us is is to avoid taking a defensive posture when regulating companies in the sharing economy. Rather, they see the sharing economy as an opportunity to enhance the services, get this, Robert, that are delivered by government, such as public transit, end quote. And I'm thinking, Mm. oh, no, just what we need. Another government non-competitor that will totally demonstrate how even high tech is a total disaster under state-directed management. (laughs) I mean, look at the mess they've made at all their attempts at, what's that called, the medical registry? What was that thing, you know? Oh, e-health? Yeah, just incredible, incredible incompetence. And this is because of a fundamental, unalterable principle, I think. Government institutions do not operate on market principles and are not concerned with consumer satisfaction or even the public interest, other than by defining their monopoly interest as being both the public interest and the best for consumers. That's how they do it. They just twist it around. Government institutions exist to fulfill mandates, and those mandates do not change with market conditions. You can only change a mandate through the clunky democratic process of debating and voting, which is not a purpose that our votes were ever intended to be used for. We can't regulate the market by vote. And finally, continues Moffat, 
he says, uh, just to point out another ridiculous example, in Portland, Oregon, for instance, uh, in trying to fight Uber, they have provided a set of practical recommendations around insurance, consumer safety, and reducing the environmental footprint of the industry. Mm-hmm. So why not make it an environmental issue while you're at it, too? Yeah. yeah. Now, it would be my guess that any environmental footprint related to the industry would be greater for the existing industry than by Uber, if you, by a long shot, if you look at the way Uber operates. And it's been in business for a long time already. And nobody's noticed except the protesting taxi industry. So where are all these environmental footprints that are supposed to be coming? Aren't they already here? Hasn't, hasn't anybody noticed it? Hello? And, and here's another thing that bugs me, Robert. This, this term, it sounds very friendly. The sharing economy. Have you thought about that? The sharing economy. Yeah, just, just think of that term. I don't think there's a lot to think about there. That doesn't make a lot of sense, the sharing economy. Thank you, because I, I was thinking uh, the so-called sharing economy, it just isn't. <laughs> What's really being described is the ability of private individuals to use their already existing assets, like their cars or their driveways or their snow plows or whatever, and who want to use those assets to provide a service for a price to the consumer. Now, that's not a sharing economy. It's just like every other economy, a trading economy. That's how all business and trade works. And the only variable is the price to the customer and the cost to the provider. And they're both incredibly lower under these circumstances. Even if someone provides a service for a price of zero, you know, people who give rides for free, that's still a trade or otherwise they wouldn't be doing it. You just ask those folks why they're giving someone a ride and they'll have a good reason. And it won't be just for nothing or because somebody's forcing me. Let's hope not anyway. But... The real bothersome thing is, and just to wrap up here, Robert, why is everyone so concerned with regulating Uber and and other services like it? I mean, like, at all. What's become abundantly clear to me, and much to my surprise, is that, you know, like I said, Uber and all these similar services, and by the way, there's a lot of them. Uber's not the only one. They've been in operation for a pretty long time already and have serviced millions upon millions of rides around the world. And none of the environmental, consumer safety, insurance, and other issues that are being thrown at us as fears for the future have happened in all these past, you know, from, from the crony politicians and, and, and crony capitalists who are telling this. They're just looking, you know, for the force of law and regulations to protect them from the true force of people's choices in the marketplace, free of those stupid caps on trade, uh, which is still the unmentionable elephant in the room, I'm afraid. But I think it is they who would properly be called the non-sharing economy. Mm. They don't want to allow other new entrants into their little fixed pie slice of the transportation market economy. And that might explain how the term sharing economy came into being. A euphemism uh, you mean for it's li- or, Orwellian, you mean? Yes. It's kind of a euphemism for what would otherwise be simply called a free economy, but they yeah. don't want to say that out loud, yeah. right? So... Um, I guess what I'd have to say to wrap up, Robert, is what we all really need to know and keep aware of is just who's taking who for a ride when it comes to the increasingly outrageous attempts to put Uber unter, you know? Uh, I always knew my German would come in handy. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Anything else to add, Robert, on that one or... No, I'm just flabbergasted that that five-minute wait period. Uh, I I just could not believe it when I saw that. That was just unbelievable. It's, it's beyond the pale, and it just shows you when you push these issues to the surface, what ugliness is revealed underneath. Can we call it that? There we go. And, anyway, and you know, it's right. also, uh, there's also a, something to glean from this, and that is that culture, the Kurt Vonnegut's uh, Harrison Bergeron story, you know, sometimes there's truth to it. And when, when life imitates art, uh, but the art is trying to warn you, of dangers of tyranny and life imitates that boy we 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 are going to need a lot of effort to stay on that road bishop sheen talked about so we don't fall off well it makes sense why a lot of these important books that teach these principles by way of a storytelling seem not to be found in the schools and in the way they were when we were younger robert and i think that's part of that conti- mm. you know continuation of a of a culture but I think we're out of time for today, and our uh, for today and our ride for today is just about to end, as we take our traditional right turn into the driveway, put the car in the park, until our next ride in the next direction, one week from today. 
Join us then when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see ya. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Apparently, because Leonard is dating Raj's sister, we're all forced to hang out at his apartment. Oh, the horror. <laughs> Indeed. Yet at one point, Raj put on reggae music, and his sister took off her shoes. It was like the last days of Caligula. <laughs> oh, I have to get this. Hello? Sheldon, are you all right? When last we spoke, you were going to take a taxi home from Raj's, but according to Facebook, you just checked in at the Cheesecake Factory. Yes, I was in a taxi, but the driver didn't look at all like the photograph on his license, so I leapt out and ran for it. Wise. <laughs>